Hello, friends. Welcome to Mr. Rewatch. This is your Mr. Robot Recap Podcast, brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Aaron. I'm Devlin. And here we are um, with episode three of season four, which is not, as I had guessed, a Tyrell Willick episode. Although it's not a Tyrell episode, I do like that it's sort of focused just on one character, and especially one who we hadn't heard that much about so far. And I think one who is so mysterious to us that I really appreciated getting some White Rose backstory to really just try to help, I think, flesh out. And and I think we did want to understand the motivations for White Rose better. So I, I'm really happy that we get some of that here. Yeah, so we had talked offline that this episode is called um, 403 Forbidden. It follows the series of um, HTTP error codes that's been established this season with uh, 401 unauthorized, 402 payment required. So not all of this really makes sense within the context of Mr. Robot, so I can only look for so much meaning in them. But um, I was trying to compare this to um, 401, the the, uh, premiere, um, unauthorized. So the difference between the 401 unauthorized error and the 403 forbidden error is that the 403 error is presented when there's no hope for you being able to um, authenticate um, for this resource. Like you can't specify a different password and then gain access. It's basically saying you're not allowed and don't try again. <laughs> Whereas with unauthorized, they do um, normally ask you for a password or something like that. And what a metaphor... Or the experience of White Rose's youth, where I think we're going to come pretty quickly um, to the ways that the you know them living an authentic kind of life uh, was forbidden. So I think it's a really well named episode. So it starts off with a flashback back to 1982. There's a meeting between IBM executives and um, characters who we don't really know yet. Actually, I guess that will be established in a minute. I love the humor in this scene. So in this scene, we get a young Ji Zheng. And, uh, and I believe I only have the surname, I think, um, Chen, um, for his counterpart. And they're in a pretty high stakes negotiation with executives from IBM. And I think what's really wonderful about this scene is there's this kind of humor in the private conversation that the two men are having in Mandarin. I know that it's um, it, it might be considered a rude opinion to have, but I feel like whenever I see people speaking um, a non-English language in public, I assume that they're talking about me in some hurtful way, but that's just social anxiety talking. But I was thinking of that here. Oh, 100%. That's social anxiety talking. But, um, but I think some of this stuff is hilarious. Um, you know, the IBM guys from America, they're so excited and junk saying things like, you know, I'm also really excited to steal all your intellectual property. It's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, and that does have um, some established real-world counterparts. So it's another one of those cases where they're pulling real phenomena into the show. Oh, is this a historic thing? Um, I was trying to do like a little bit of research, by which I mean like five minutes on Google before this episode to have a bit of insight that I could provide to you about that. Um some headlines that I saw and didn't read said that um, one in five American companies had been the victim of intellectual property theft from China. Um, one big example that I read into a little bit more was with um, uh, a company that produced software for wind turbines. Um, China has made a lot of um, 
very progressive regulations when it comes to um, green energy, including uh, wind power. So they had an agreement with an American company where they would build up these turbines and the American company would build the software to power them. But then um, they kind of just ended up taking the software and using it for their turbines without actually paying for anything. And um, it resulted in the company facing a, a billion dollars a billion dollars in damage, sorry, and laying off um, 600 people or two thirds of their workforce. Well, uh, well, maybe property is theft. <laughs> you need to put a lot more exclamation points at the end of that. <laughs> well, maybe property is theft. No, <laughs> um, I do want to say before we move on uh, in seriousness, I think the casting is really good here because it must be a great challenge for an actor, I think, to pick up on a role that another actor is already playing and interpreting. So Ross Kurt Lee, who's playing the young Zhejiang, uh, and Eugene Shaw, uh, who plays Chen, I think they both do a really great job. I really think so, too. And um the people who are casting these actors also have the additional challenge that it has to have a resemblance to the younger version of um, B.T. Wong, in this case. So I think that it's really great that they were able to find somebody who is able to do that in a really competent way, uh, given how difficult it must have been. I wonder if they like studied B.T. Wong's movements or or maybe the tapes, you know, to help them get in, in the zone. Because you're right, they are really, they're portraying the character they're portraying, but also the the actor who's already bringing that character to life. Right. Well, I think we all study B.T. Wong's movements. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm. Um, when, um, when the two men finish their meeting and they're back in there, I think this is a hotel room, right? It seems like it. A distinctly 80s one. Like a much nicer one than the ones I normally stay in, though. On the TV, uh, there's a music video playing, and it's Culture Club. Uh, the song is called Time. And I think Culture Club is perfect here because, I mean, Boy George is famous for having pretty well zero regard for conventional gender expression. And, uh, you know, he's a hero for that. I was glad that you commented on that because I hadn't really known um, who the performer was. But that definitely adds a bit more depth to um the discussion is going to be coming up in this episode. I think a lot of what's telling about this flashback is um, which one of us was born in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, maybe people don't know that. Yeah, <laughs> it's the woman using the notebook. I'll tell you, I'll tell you that. Um, I love uh, I love this story. It's these two young, ambitious guys. They're so in love and they have such big dreams and the big dream here is for Zhejiang to be made ambassador to the United States following this huge business deal that they've just done. And that's a place where his partner feels they'll be able to live more open and authentic lives together. Yeah, it's really sad to think about the motivation that they have to um, pursue the U.S. ambassadorship. But it also goes to show you what the stakes really were in that meeting with IBM earlier. Um, this is really... a uh, Kind of career-oriented Tyrell, or, or sorry, I was going to say this is career-oriented White Rose, and it gives me flashbacks to Tyrell, um, some of the scenes that he would have had with um, Joanna Wellick in the first season. Oh, that's so interesting. So you know what I'm finding really interesting about this season? I'm feeling like they're reusing motifs from previous episodes and seasons in different ways, and I think... When there's that deliberate repetition in a work of art, it's supposed to tell us something. And there's another big scene like that later in the episode, but 
I think it's important maybe what you picked up on here. I feel like that's not the only case where they've had a callback to season one. And I think that um, most of us can agree that's our favorite. So we're always glad to see this. One one other um, work of art I wanted to mention that our listeners might enjoy is uh, a book I've started reading called Beijing Comrades. And so this is a story. It's uh, it's set in the 1980s. Um, it was published underground in mainland China. And it's it has explicit queer content and it's critical uh, of the government uh, of the day as well. And so it's kind of an interesting glimpse into this world we're getting a glimpse into as, I mean, we're Canadian outsiders. Um, and the fun thing about this book is it's also a, it's a bit of a Banksy situation where the authorship isn't clear. So there are theories that there might be multiple authors and people have speculated as to uh, different authorship over time. Um, but Beijing Comrades is sort of a, an important work. So I think, and I'm going to mispronounce it probably, but this uh, this concept of a, a samizdat or a sort of clandestine manuscript that's distributed through a culture uh, because of repressive government regimes, but has great cultural significance and also can be a link to other cultures and places in the world as it's translated and transmitted is an important um, feature in kind of repressive political places. And I mean, we could argue that pretty where anywhere in the world you live right now, you live in a varying degree of a repressive political place. That's very insightful. I was trying to remember what that word was before you had uh, brought it up. Well, there's a very, in my fam- in my favorite Russian novel, there's a famous line um, after a man tries to destroy his clandestine manuscript, um, the devil comes to him and says that manuscripts don't burn. So texts like these, once they're released into the world, it's like that saying you can't unring the bell or you can't uncrack an egg. Um, Then that knowledge is out there. It can never be taken back. Um, Yeah, that definitely does seem like a theme that they talk about in Mr. Robot a bunch too. Um, I think my favorite part of this, and actually producer Dave is a big fan of, I believe, 80s Casio watches. Yeah, I actually own this watch. What? Do you have this very watch? Yeah, it's it's not the... I don't have the gold with the black band. It's all silver, but it's the same model. Different color. Oh my god. Okay, you're going to tell me the model afterwards. Um, but we hear that infamous watch beeping that we hear at critical moments in the White Rose story. And that's when we learn that um, somehow, and, and I guess it will be exposed uh, later um, over time, they've acquired uh, this watch from their lover. Uh, on the TV, there is a movie playing. I don't know if you're familiar with the movie The Thing. No, I'm not. Um, what <laughs> I was going to say one thing, a different thing that I noticed was that um, the subtitles refer to uh, Blade Runner as opposed to The Thing. So I think that maybe that was what they were trying to use originally, and then they ran into some licensing issues, or they had a, a last-minute decision to switch that out. But um, it made it a little more difficult to understand what the intention was by having that particular movie. I thought that some of our listeners who maybe have seen the movies or who understand uh, that genre a little bit better might have theories about the linkage here. So you can tweet that at us if you've got an idea about why they might have been watching these movies that night. There's kind of a transitional scene here where these uh, two guys are supposed to go to, you know, those lousy forced business drinks that you have to go to after a meeting. Like after you do a oh, big yeah. deal, they're supposed to go to that. Yeah, the worst part is you can't even get drunk at. Well, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Um, <laughs> uh, and so uh, Zhang decides that they're not going to go, and Chen instead goes and represents both of them. For quite a while. Uh, we can see that it gets to be nighttime by the time they come back. 
Oh my god. And so actually now that you mentioned that, I think so White Rose has to then sit in the tension and anticipation of wondering how this next revelation is going to play out for all of that time. So just imagine all that building. <laughs> they could have been there for hours, actually. That would probably be pretty awkward. Oh my god, can you imagine? Like they get all dressed up and they're like, well, fuck it, I'll make popcorn, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um one thing I love about this next scene, and I think this is just so beautifully done because I think I think unfortunately in the world we live in, there's always a risk uh, when a trans person discloses that that they may be at, at risk of violence or of rejection or of some other painful thing. And so I really think this next scene is so, it touches my heart. It's really beautiful the way it's done. I agree with how you characterize it there. I think that especially just considering the media that um, we've consumed that presents us with stories like this, um, was it like Boys Don't Cry? Or oh, something oh like God, that? yeah. Like, um, they, the, the mainstream media depictions of situations like these tend to be pretty negative, <laughs> to, uh, to put it uh, lightly. So I liked how in this scene, they, they sort of turn it on its head. And... Um, before we get into the dialogue, I just wanted to mention that um, in this room, the cinematography has um, mirrors on on both sides of um, White Rose. I guess you can call them that at this point. I've been referring interchangeably to Zheng and White Rose through this whole narrative. So, so yeah, I follow. I follow. That's been working pretty well so far, but I bet we're going to find out that they're separate characters at some point in some kind of twist. And then we'll throw off everything. <laughs> but... Um, no, um, what I was trying to say was that the mirrors and their positions kind of have a dual purpose, where one of them is to um, give us multiple different viewpoints on White Rose, and we can kind of see how that reflects their multiple identities and the multiple lives that they live. But they also more explicitly walk up to one of the mirrors, and you can see that it's like a moment of self-reflection for them, that they're going through and wondering um, how the partner's going to react. And this actually goes back to in last episode when we were talking about um, no exit and hell is other people. Because remember in that story, there are no mirrors. So the only way you can see yourself is in how you are reflected by the people around you. Oh, wow. That's a great observation. Well, and I think it's because what White Rose really wants here is to see that they're reflected in their partner in, in this positive way. And I, I think it's wonderful that, you know, as White Rose is trying to express that they are really a woman um that's not what chen was thinking at all chen was just thinking that she was beautiful the way they write that is so nice and um knowing how ruthless white rose is in the present timeline it's difficult to um feel so much compassion for them but they do a really good job of um uh kind of showing you where they're coming from I think an important thing about this character is and i i appreciate you know this is um Sort of, uh, there's the storyline's a bit fantastic in certain ways. We have all these potential supernatural kind of elements and, and intrigues that have developed over time. But it is really great to see a trans character on TV who is so three dimensional. So they're flawed, but they're also very powerful. Uh, so I think this is an interesting portrayal. And, and I think overall, uh, and, and, you know, I'm a cis person and certainly people can disagree with me and, and I would hear it. But I think it's a positive portrayal and an interesting, well-rounded character, um, which is unfortunately maybe somewhat unique. And so even though the show's been criticized uh, somewhat for not casting a trans actor in this role, 
I think they're trying to be really mindful of taking care of the story of a trans person in the show. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And I think that I'm, um, I'm about to do some mansplaining here because I yes, guess please. I'm even less qualified to talk about these things when it comes from the perspective of lived experience. Um, I thought that um, the show always does a really great job of dealing with moral ambiguity and having characters who are not really just um, concretely heroes or villains. There are some really objectionable things that um, Elliot does. And White Rose, for example, was just responsible for killing like thousands of people and Angela uh, just over the past few episodes. So um, I think that um, they always try and infuse some good and some bad into every character to make them more compelling. So I like that they gave like this much dimensionality to this um, uh, LGBT character. But I also just am cautious always of having them be portrayed as the villains. I think that um, especially with like trans women and um, bisexual or like uh, people who sort of identify as multiple different uh, things at once, they they have like a TV trope named after their negative depiction. <laughs> um, and in a previous episode, we had talked about um, the Silence of the Lambs, which has like a very prominent. Um, villain who is cross-dressing in like a delusional way and when i think about um the character they're presenting us in mr robot it's obviously a very different character that's handled much more graciously but it exists within the context of all of that cinema that we've seen before it where we do have um trans villains who are depicted in extremely negative ways um as far as their decision to um cast a, a cis actor for it. I think that um, they could have done a better job there, but at least with B.D. Wong, they have somebody who is active um, in the sense that they're an activist in the LGBT community. And hopefully they're a little closer to the pulse of um, what's uh, going on um, in that demographic than the average actor would be. And I think B.D. Wong has spoken out to say that they certainly think there should be more opportunities for trans actors Um and so, you know, I think a good advocate there. Um, and what, sir, what's the name of the, the trope you were talking about, about the sneaky bisexuals? I actually just Googled sneaky bisexuals to try and find out what that was. And I had to do a bit of scrolling through other stuff to get there. But um, it's, it's called uh, depraved bisexual, which I guess is a very uh, um, simple way to put it. That sounds so sinister. I was going to say, you know, we're speaking from some lived experience on this topic, but I don't know if depraved really captures it. <laughs> it also links to psycho lesbian, but I feel like these are just becoming rude at this point. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> anyway, I think you get to, you get the concept and, and I don't I don't think you mansplained to me there. I think you're raising a pretty valid concern about you know, when um, when trans characters are cast as simple villains, um, particularly in any way related to what people know or don't know about their uh, gender identity, I, I think that that can be very concerning. And of course, it, you're right, it does come from a body of existing work that has not uh, historically always been thoughtful or well-rounded. Oh, my goodness. So we really got to move on to the next scene, though. So we notice um, just quickly before we cut back to the present, uh, the time on the beeping watch is 1116. And you caught something related to that. It was more appropriate to say that I caught somebody else catching that. But it was noted online that uh, 
the clock that beeps on the watch right now is 11.16, and that's the same time that's locked on um, Elliot's mom's clock when he goes to visit her in a previous season. Oh, interesting. And then it's also the time on Zhang's watch when we cut back to the present, where they're instructing their assistant to have that same white dress that they're wearing in the flashback ready because that's the that's what they're going to wear on the day that the project is finally shipped to the Congo. So I want to say something about the date that's coming up. I think that's when most people think 1116, um, like what, what kind of images that give you or what does that make you think about? 1116? The time that's on the clocks. Is it a.m. or p.m.? <laughs> I don't know. I would assume a.m. It doesn't make me think of anything. <laughs> it doesn't. I, I'm not getting. I'm, I'm not getting any reference off of it. Okay. Well, um, some people have thought of this to be um, November sixteenth, like eleven eleventh month, sixteenth day. But um, bearing in mind that it is in the story currently, um, Christmas in the year twenty fifteen. Um, the date that White Rose is planning to ship this project may be January 1st, 2016, which would also be 1-1-16. Oh, interesting. They're planning to wear this nice dress for it. I also kind of think that like the black-white motif is something that they that established at this point, because I remember that really stylish uh, mystery house that they took Angela to. And maybe that's just a fashion decision that they've made, like I have to. <laughs> I mean, you can't go wrong. It's very classic. Um, Wang Shu is quite Wang Shu is quite concerned about um, Elliot Alderson out running free in the world, and Philip Price's very conveniently timed resignation. And so, you were pointing out in a conversation we had uh, that Wang Shu seems a little bit different than the other assistants. Yeah, they definitely seem more assertive. And considering that that was what led to Grant's downfall, it makes me wonder what's different about the relationship between Grant and White Rose and now Wing um, Su and White Rose. Because um, for one, she's actually kind of the person who puts together the dots here that Elliot's and um, Price's resignation might be related. And um, she's really forceful about how she presents this idea to uh, Zhang. And kind of tries to convey that what she thinks is the best option to take actually is the only way to go. I don't know that Grant, say, would have been able to be so forceful. I feel like White Rose um, had to... Had, I don't want to say was more controlling, but I think was more in charge of the situation with him and was more easily able to put restraints on his desires. Um, but for some reason does not either want to be that uh, directive um, or or trusts this person more. I can't quite figure out what's going on yet. Well, I was saying that um, Wang Su was the one who had put together the idea that Price and Elliot might be working together. So uh, to contrast that with Grant, um, Wang Su here has actually given some really valuable advice to White Rose. And in some ways, they're like a trusted advisor who's... Um, able to give White Rose some really good suggestions about the situation that's in front of them and how to handle it. So um, I do get the impression that like they're really competent and maybe that's just why they're more respected by White Rose. Oh, maybe. Maybe they're just better at their job. Now, the concession that Zhang makes to her is that there will be constant surveillance for Elliot and that's going to be important to us at the end of the episode. But now we get another flashback. It's triggered by something... Wang Shu says, there's a flashback to a big wedding, which really looks like quite a party, don't you think? 
<laughs> it does look like a great time until you see the circumstances that led up to it. We get sort of a some dark humor here where Zhang has sent some white roses to the groom. That's a flower for funerals. And so it's meant to be a bit humorous and a bit tongue-in-cheek because the man who's getting married is uh, is his partner, Chen, who's being forced into marrying a woman um, by their father. Having there be the literal white roses in this scene is kind of like in a movie when they use the title of the movie in the speech. And you're just like, hey, I got that. You're like, oh, it all makes sense now. It makes a little bit more sense because we get to see a little bit more of White Rose's background here. It does fill in a, a lot of missing pieces for me, I think, to, to get a bit of this story. So this is where, and I don't know that I would have picked this particular moment to, to share this, uh, but Zhang reveals that they have, in fact, secured a much better position, uh, Minister of State Security, but of course, one that really complicates the dream that they had for their new life together. Right. So the decision that Zhang here is presented with is to become the ambassador to the United States, which would let them um, live an authentic life together, or to take a higher position as the um, Minister of State Security. And this would give them greater influence, but it wouldn't allow them to have a deeper relationship with their partner. So I think that what they're trying to demonstrate to you here is that um, White Rose kind of like prioritizes their own ambitions and especially their conquest for power and just to be um, a really strong and authoritative person. And they're willing to put that ahead of other people, including their love interest. And not only do they kind of put their own needs ahead of theirs, but they also... Um, don't even really consider how their partner might react to it. So I guess that's a really a revelatory moment about the motivations for that character. So this scene uh, ends, I mean, truly tragically. And, um, you know, we'll have a bit of a content warning here that, of course, um, this season has had a couple of, uh, of violent suicides uh, as part of the story. And so... Um, Chen takes their own life and we get this, I think, quite impressive image of white roses that are then uh, sprayed with his blood. Yeah, he kills himself in a pretty grotesque way, too, by cutting his own throat. I think especially when we add um, the the Dark Army confrontations into the mix, um, Mr. Robot has probably had more on-screen suicides than anything else to ever exist in the world. So um, a content warning is probably something that would be appreciated. Um, I think that one thing worth mentioning is that at the end of this episode, so I mean, after you've already been dealing and stewing with it for half an hour, um, they have um, a phone number for a um, suicide prevention hotline, if that's how they prefer to be named. And I've heard a rumor that that was um, based on Carly Chaikin's advice that they thought that that would be something worthwhile to add to this specific episode. Oh, that's great. I didn't catch that in my viewing of it, but I think that is a good resource for people to be aware of. It's only on screen for like two seconds, so you can tell that it's just like a contractual obligation or something like that. Now, when we get back to the present, so Jean recalls this dark and terrible memory, and perhaps that motivates them when they decide that they're going to take charge of the situation that they're in. And they're going to destabilize Elliot and Price 
by forcing changes to their timeline. So they're going to let what's going to happen happen, and they're going to make it happen fast. So the Deus group is going to meet on Christmas Day. Uh, that sounds festive. <laughs> right. So um, Wang Su had asked for White Rose to be patient, and that's what triggered these memories of um, this traumatic experience of their partner's suicide, because they have a really profound quote there that says that um, to ask someone to be patient is ask for their surrender. And that really just adds a lot more depth to um, White Rose's philosophy of time, of coincidences. And um, by trying to destabilize their opponents, I think that what they're trying to do is force their hands. But I'm curious, um, which hand is actually being forced here and uh, which consequence will actually result for which person? Because um, I think it's also Elliot and Price's um, uh, intention to kind of have this move very, very quickly. So it might be the case that by accelerating this um, voting process for Price's successor, that they're actually just playing into Elliot's intentions. Well, I think Elliot's commitment was that he would get the project shipped by the end of the year. And I think that might explain some of his anxiety later in the episode, because they're coming awfully close to his deadline. Now, let me also just brag for half a second here that I have also my second ever correct prediction in this show. Because Tyrell Wellick is going to be installed as the new CEO of Allcorp, and he'll replace Price. That was a great prediction. Um, I hadn't thought of that myself, but when you mentioned it in the last episode, I just remember thinking that that must be the way that they were going to go. So I was really glad that um, we had another correct prediction from the show. And maybe that means that episode four will be the Tyrell episode. I really do still think we'll get a Tyrell-centric one this season, um, but they are making us wait a little bit for it. So now let's talk about some of the other characters in this episode. Mr. Robot is trying to talk to Elliot about the Vera threat, but he doesn't seem very interested in listening, I don't think. He's not very interested. Um, uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm shot. But now um, I think that like what Vera is up to so far is a bit of a mystery to all of us. Um, it does seem like a threat, but we don't really know where that threat's coming from or the approach that they're going to take. Um, we get some insight into that when we have a Vera scene later on, and he talks a bit more about um, how he plans to approach the, the problem of Elliot, but um, it's not something that's known to any of the characters right now. I do still think that Mr. Robot has a very different tone and demeanor in this season, and so I'm not trying... I'm not sure if they're trying to establish really two distinct Mr. Robots. I know there's a lot of talk and um, thinking now about how many alters live within Elliot and who's presenting at what time. But I really do feel that Mr. Robot is different this season. And I think we see that um, this episode and in particular in the way he kind of stands down from uh, potentially a confrontation that they have when they run into Krista on the street. It is always awkward to run into your therapist outside of an appointment. Yeah, it would be. It would be. You know, they should probably just um, cross the street or uh, politely ignore you. But instead, she takes the opportunity to remind him that she doesn't want any contact with him again whatsoever. And do you think that's caused by that conversation that she has with Mr. Robot? Um. I think if we're referring to the same thing, um, she has like a direct conversation with Mr. Robot where they do get into the, the specific details of his dissociative identities. And um, he also confesses to his role in the um, stage three cyber attacks. So 
that would be a really big cause for concern for Krista. But I want to kind of um, take us back into something else that you had also said about um, Mr. Robot. So I think you're right that he's behaving much more um, calm and rationally compared to how he had been in previous seasons, especially in the first season where he was kind of like the devil on Elliot's shoulder. So I still don't really think that like the relationship has changed that much from the story's perspective, but I think that what they're trying to do is um, lighten him up specifically in contrast to Elliot. I think that um, Elliot has had a lot of um, kind of outbursts of more violence or aggressive behavior. And there's one that comes up in, in this episode later on too. But I think that what they want to do is um, have Mr. Robot be a more pleasant character. So um, Elliot will seem like a more uh, unpleasant character. And then they can take all of those unpleasant actions and say that this is actually the third altar who we haven't seen yet. So I don't think that like um, Robot is really changing for his own purposes. I think that it's just to create a contrast between the character who's going to come up later on. That's interesting because I think, and we're going to talk about this in the all safe scene. I think there is some sharp contrast uh, to be found there. So last point before we move on to that. Uh, Vera's henchman from that horrible scene outside the prison uh, in episode one is following Elliot on the street. And so he observes this confrontation with Krista. But then we cut away to Allsafe, where Darlene is still wearing her mom's coat. It's a nice coat. It gave me, again, some season one vibes. Oh, it really does. Yeah, it's actually very Darlene's style. I wonder if that first coat she stole from her mom. <laughs> she seems like a person who would steal a coat from her nasty mom. Don't you think? She seems like somebody who's thrifty to me. And I was just reading an article about how Kurt Cobain's famous um, cardigan from his Unplugged tour is selling for like $180,000. But he bought it from some like 1960s thrift store for two bucks and it has chocolate stains in the pocket. She for sure has to be thrifty. I mean, she hasn't had employment or a fixed address since we've known her. So, you know, I bet she she plays the breaks, I think. I think she finds her opportunities. Um, looks good I forget what she calls. Yes, yes, she does. Um, I forget what she calls all safe. Something like a nerd farm. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess that's like the physical correspondent of a server farm. You need to have the nerds for the servers. Darlene's found Susan Jacobs' contact uh, at the bank. Uh, her name is Olivia Cortez. But the complication is they're going to need physical access to her laptop. So they're not going to be able to break into the system uh, remotely, which would have been much safer. Um, and instead, they get into kind of a nasty confrontation about who's going to do the actual uh, B&E, which is a weird thing uh, to fight about. <laughs> Especially because how excited she seems to be about it. But I guess she's um, a real pro at this point. I think um, the scenes where Elliot is physically aggressive with Darlene make me really uncomfortable. And it's something I was thinking about um, when I was saying that White Rose is like a really villainous character, but they kind of inject some humanity into them over the story. Elliot, um, he's the protagonist, but they also insert these moments where he's just a complete asshole, <laughs> like where you would think that he would be the villain if it were any other story. And um, that's one of the ways that the show kind of makes all of the characters be more compelling and have their own kind of unique um, ambitions and motivations. Um, but 
this isn't also the first time that he's behaved this way with Darlene. I think that's why I was trying to say earlier that um, this might be his third alter ego that's trying to present itself. Um, if you remember from previous seasons, uh, there have been there have been times when he's been um, physically aggressive with Darlene too. There have been times when he's been physically aggressive, but he's never been unapologetic like he is in this scene. Because I remember particularly there's one scene where she says, you're hurting me, and he stops, and he seems kind of ashamed, and he seems kind of startled. But this time he says, well, I know. So I, I think you're right that a lot of things are being done here to establish contrast in per, between current behavior and former behaviors in both the Elliot and Mr. Robot manifestations. So. Certainly, they're setting us up for the reveal about what the the other identity uh, might be. Um, and I think it goes back to also something that you said about, you know, no one in this show is wholly good or, or wholly bad, where Elliot is the protagonist and we care a lot about him. We cheer for him and his goals, but he has his own struggles and people who, you know, face struggles that he has. Uh, don't always behave in optimal ways um, and sometimes have challenging relationships. So I, I think it's it's also a bit shocking because I think anytime we see um, men being aggressive to women on, you know, in um, on screen, uh, I think it is. It evokes something different in us than other kinds of interactions. So, yeah, this is very shocking. Um, and poor Darlene, like you can see her tearing up because I think for all of the things he's put her through, she still does really care about Elliot, but even more so maybe than that, fundamentally cares about the project that they're doing. Yeah, the project that she kind of sees as her own. Um, she mentioned in the last episode that if society, um, she was considered the leader of it. So I think that you have the same kind of ideological motivations. Um but yeah, it's definitely um, a really challenging scene. Um, one thing that I also wanted to touch on before we get into the next part is to do with how they um, need physical access to the laptop to get this person's um, uh, private data. And I feel like there's actually like a lot of hands-waving that goes on in here until we get to the um, two-factor authentication bit. That's another part that's actually very interesting from a security perspective, but when it comes to this laptop, um, it's about like VPN software. It doesn't really make a lot of um, sense to me just in those simple terms. But the thing I wanted to touch on, um, sorry for the uh, tangent, is let's um, physical access to a machine, um, as long as it's powered on, does tend to mean that um, you can basically hack whatever is on it. Like if you have physical access to a machine that is turned on, there is nothing that they can stop you from doing as far as accessing the memory, um, which will include passwords, um, and the the disk normally, but also even if it's encrypted, you still have the passwords that are going to be stored in memory. So um, this does obviously take um, a, a pretty big role in this episode when they're hacking somebody's laptop, mm -hmm. but much more often you'll see that it happens um, in the context of servers. Somebody's hosting um, an illegal website, and they're using some server in like Finland or Iceland or some crap like that. And um, no matter how perfect their own operational security is, anybody who actually has access to that server can go in there and poke around to their heart's content. They can analyze it. They can also image it, take it home, look at it later. And um, that's been a way that a lot of um, so-called darknet websites have been taken down so far. So we need physical access to the laptop. 
we're brother and sister. Who should do the B and E? Huh. I feel like we'd be a great team after we went to DEF CON together. Yeah, maybe we'd have to do it together. You know, somebody look out, somebody to, you know, actually get into the machine. That would be you. You'd have to do that part. I was thinking I would be like a pizza delivery person and then you can just like walk right past. Oh, yeah. Or I feel like, you know, I'd be like somebody asking them to help me find my lost dog. And, you know, then you just like breeze right in that in that apartment. Oh, yeah. You and I want to help you and you're lying to me right now. (laughs) So uh, they strategize. They strategize about the hack. Um, Elliot decides that he's going to intervene in um, a blind date um, that Olivia Cortez. So that's contact has at a bar called Oscar Wilde. This is a real bar in New York City. Uh, I don't know the significance of it yet, but that's where he decides to meet her. And he's lucky in that she gets stood up by this real Ollie type chump that's supposed to meet her. (laughs) And what I really like here is the interplay between Elliot and Mr. Robot. So Elliot decides he's going to kind of uh, Ron's coffee her and Mr. Robot advocates for um, a more gentle approach. And I think it seemed pretty successful, no? I think so, yeah. And I'm really glad that you had referred to Evan as like Ollie 2.0 because I also feel like um, Olivia is kind of like Shayla 2.0 and they're really calling back into those um, season one ideas. Um, And including like the the Ron's Coffee approach that you had mentioned. Um, I think that they add a lot more into the scene later on when we get um, a wider perspective about how Elliot's... um, initial approach would have worked out and actually seems like robot had really saved him from a disaster but um i think that like the the interplay between the characters is really cool and i also thought it was funny that they pull up all three chairs to the table where there's really only two people oh yeah yeah very subtle um um now speaking of kind of a callback to shayla the next scene takes place in the diner that she was abducted from Oh my god, really? I I think so. I think so. Oh, it's the same painting. You're right. That must be such a... Yeah, that must be a very intentional reference they're making. I need to do a little bit more research, but I believe the painting is by Gilberto and Hernandez Ortega, um, who was a painter from the Dominican Republic. Um, I don't know enough about their work to know what significance... Um, he might have uh, to Vera, but that seems like a pretty fancy painting to have in a drug front uh, kidnappy diner. <laughs> um, I really love how they have Vera in this scene wearing the Santa hat and the um, like the white muscle shirt or however you'd like to refer to that. I would like to refer to it as a muscle shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so um, worried and upset for uh, all the little children who are coming in and picking up chickens stuffed with drugs, ostensibly for their parents, from Santa Vera. Like, this is so scary. Like, I feel like Mrs. Reverend Lovejoy doing, like, won't somebody please think of the children? (laughs) This is so upsetting. Yeah. You know, it is really sad, not just because of what they show you, but the implication that it has for everybody else involved. Um, As far as Santa Vera, like, he even puts on a red hoodie with white stripes, so it's really some intentional imagery that they have going on. Do you remember that scary Xanta guy who used to hang out on Toronto public transit and, like, do chin-ups and be terrifying? 
Oh, yeah. You know, he wasn't always scary. He fell off a ladder. So it's really a tragic tale. Oh, that's really sad. That's really sad. I haven't seen him in years, but I, I don't know how that story ends. But Vera's story uh, still has many chapters to be written. Uh, they're there. The, the henchman has a name. I think their name is DJ, but I could be wrong. They are talking about why they came back to New York. And what do you take from that? Well, this is just like a really brutal performance review scene um, because Vera talks and he still talks in that sort of quasi mystical kind of way of his um, about wanting Elliot to be a partner and talking about how, you know, you have to persuade someone like that to work with you. You can't force them when DJ is really just saying, you know, can't I just put a gun to his head and get what we want done? And Vera saying, no, we got to take the the more elegant path. And so then Vera and um, a tiny child with very good emotional intelligence analyze this picture of uh, the confrontation between Krista and Elliot on the street. And so at that point, I like this line, this Vera line is my favorite. You got to be more detailed. The devil's in that shit. <laughs> that was my favorite too. I was hoping you would say that. So um, DJ, unfortunately, um, he's, uh, he's terminated. Um, he's no longer with the organization uh, as of the end of this scene. Yeah. I mean, if my performance reviews were this harsh, I would probably be a lot more motivated. But um, it it. It's something that they're kind of reusing from the very sudden shooting scene that they had with Farrah's brother. I guess this is a pattern of behavior for him. Um, this is back to the disturbing behavior in front of kids. The uh, little emotional intelligence boy is still sitting on the counter during this brutal murder. So I don't know if these are children of um, Vera's colleagues um, or if they're children of clients in the community but I thought oh my god the trauma the trauma that these kids have experienced um, but it also makes it seem almost surreal to me like the Santa hat the little kids sitting there the chickens like everything about this it seems like it's happening but it also has an unreal quality about it um, and I, I like that for the reintroduction of a minor but but sinister villain it made me think of um in Game of Thrones, they have the so-called little birds, which is like um, children who are recruited by spies, and then they'll carry out things like reconnaissance or even assassinations. But um, it leads to a lot of scenes where you have like eight-year-olds stabbing people and stuff like that. And I guess um, when you're kind of raised and exposed to a culture of violence, um, it would have a really devastating impact on you, obviously, but part of that is becoming numb to it. And I imagine that for people who um, actually experience these things, it's um, difficult not to build up like a defensive emotional reaction to it. So let's talk about some other person who's traumatized with defensive emotional reactions. Uh, for a sec, earlier in this episode, White Rose says something about how they don't believe there's any such thing as coincidence. I don't think there's any such thing as coincidence either. And part of me wonders... I kind of think the Olivia storyline feels too convenient. Do you? I I think so, but I had thought of it as being too on the nose. Oh, like, okay. I think that maybe what you're getting at is that she's Dark Army affiliated. Yeah, I think I as, am. Yeah, that. yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I really could believe that, but I actually kind of find it more easy to believe that this is, um, well... I guess, like, we've been talking about this a lot, and I'm, I'm sorry to keep, like, bringing it up over again, but I think she's going to get fridged pretty soon. Mm. And I think that this is just um, something that's supposed to increase the stakes that Elliot is working with. We can think about how, um, for example, like, the 
FBI agent who Dom was dealing with was terminated over having like 0.01% um, uh, less confidence than was necessary. So this seems like a, a kind of a more risky situation than a dark army person would be allowed to be in. Um, I think um, I've I've actually done a lot of reflection over the show also about um, uh, Breaking Bad, and they have um, one kind of like primary love interest for a character named Jane, who has a, a very unfortunate death. And then they introduce another character named Andrea, who exists just for a little while and also dies. And it's just to kind of create more um, character character developments. Like they're, they become invested in this person and then something happens and then that changes their motivation. So I kind of feel like Olivia is just... Um, Shayla 2.0 and it actually when I put it that way it makes it sound horrible and I, I don't really hope that that's the way that it goes but that's the way that I see it going so fun fact um the actor who plays Olivia is actually the daughter of uh, Andy Garcia who's a famous actor and her name is Dominique I think I think I see what you're saying and I see why people seem to be really taken with the scenes between Elliot and Olivia where I think they are kind of tender and charming. Um, and even though I think neither character knows what to make of the other exactly, or neither one knows exactly what's real and what isn't about the other person. I think um, the connection they have together is, is really good on screen. Their chemistry is really good. So I see why people are kind of taken with it, even though I'm just being cynical that I think there are just too many parallels for this to be happening naturally. And so the other big parallel here, obviously, is this is the the Dom Lean scene. Oh, yeah. They even have kind of similar music playing, don't they? I don't know. This is Grimes, this one. No, because Dom likes country music. I really love Grimes until I found out that they were union busting at Elon Musk's companies. And then like, really? wow, that really ruins it for you. Ew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I really like... Um, how like in those moments of tenderness you can actually see Elliot smile for once um that's not really something you see very often and um once Evan um authentically shows up uh, very late um Olivia kind of takes off at that point and I think that we see a bit of this third Elliot personality um in the actions that he takes next yeah I think whatever theory I have right now about who's doing what is certainly going to be proven wrong because I was trying to decide, you know, is this calculated move to go home with her and capitalize on the the spark that they had in order to steal her ID badge? I mean, while that's definitely a Darlene move, I don't necessarily think of that as an Elliot move, but I also think I probably should. I mean, he's singularly focused on his goal. Why wouldn't he do something like that? So I don't know if I have reason to believe that's Elliot Prime or not anymore. It's also something that Tyrell did in the first season, right? I think that it's something really they've tried to foreshadow a bit. Um, And so that's what I mean about these motifs that keep recurring through the show with different characters in subtly different ways. I think repetition is always symbolic. So I think I'm really interested in all of this stuff. Now, Elliot, just as he's closing in on what he's trying to get, gets a text from Price saying that the meeting is on for tomorrow night. I wonder, do you think they serve uh, a turkey dinner at the Deus Group Christmas? (laughs) I would hope so. And they probably have that gigantic Christmas tree, right? 
What's in the Christmas crackers? Like diamonds or? So I also heard a funny story on, I think, Radiolab about um, fortune cookies, which was that um, once the lucky numbers that they give you in those from time to time um, actually was the correct lottery numbers. And knowing how many people take those numbers and just put them into the lottery, it ended up being a tie between dozens of people for the jackpot because just that one day the fortune cookie had the same uh, numbers as the lottery. That's so cool. Um, I remember you telling me once that um, fortune cookies are an American Chinese adaptation. And if you're interested in those adaptations, you should read Chop Suey Nation, which is a book of different stories from Chinese Canadian restaurants. And it talks about culture and cuisine. Well, that's a great call out. But, uh, but back to uh, this moment, uh, which is not about fortune cookies. The the end of the scene with uh, Elliot and Olivia, I think is really vulnerable. They're talking about suicidal ideation um it's a it's a really i don't know how to describe this scene how would you describe it well it's definitely very dramatic especially considering these people met like 12 hours ago maybe um that they're already discussing these things um i think that there's like a bit we can also call back into um from their meeting at the bar when elliot talks about being in recovery and about how um he was uh, given a dosage of heroin two days ago. There's actually like a bit of humor that they stick in there where um, Olivia asks him if he was like held on and forced to, which is actually the truth that he actually admits that. But um, now the following morning, she's able to relate um, Elliot's problem with substances to something she's experienced herself. So if we remember back in um, Olivia's house in the following scene in the bar, um, Elliot's first, like, vigilante Elliot plan was to blackmail her using the knowledge of um, her OxyContin abuse to affect the custody decision when it comes to her child. So, obviously, um, taking a person and using their child as a pawn um, or as a weapon against them um, is a really horrible thing. And I think that this is, like, another one of those moments that make you... um, doubt how much of a hero Elliot really is. But as Olivia reveals more about her own um, history and how she no longer is using substances, she actually just keeps it as kind of a reminder about her mortality and the risk that that poses to her. Um, We can see that Elliot's plan actually wouldn't have worked because there wouldn't be any evidence she was using drugs. Um, That's actually a misconception that she had. Sorry, that's actually a misconception that um, Elliot had. So it really saved the day that Robot was able to intervene and handle this in a more diplomatic way. Um, and maybe like diplomatic is a good way to talk about the discussion that they have in general, because they definitely seem to be getting along really well for people who met each other so recently. Elliot doesn't get to stay in this pleasant space for very long because... He's got to get back to Allsafe. So he's got the information off of her fob. So all of this closeness and connection hasn't stopped him from getting the information that he came there to get. That's been communicated to Darlene. But on their way back, they decide that it's actually safer to go back home because they notice that that white dark army van that's been hanging out outside Dom's house has been tailing them. So you say that that's um, a dark army van. I think that that might be raised into question later because we also know that um, Vera is on his case. So who knows who's really following him? Oh, true, because I can't see who's inside the van or even how many people or anything like that. I don't know if you got a better visual. 
No, but it did seem like it would be a little sloppy for the Dark Army to be following him so obviously. Unless they want him to know. But you know what? They don't want him to know because there's more juicy stuff uh, happening. Um, someone's broken into Elliot's apartment. Yeah, that's pretty scary. It's our favorite, very important businessman <laughs> waiting inside. The VIB, Tyrell. VIB? Very important businessman. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you coined it. <laughs> I'm just uh, not fast with the acronym, but uh, Tyrell is waiting inside. And I was thinking it must have been very, very difficult for Tyrell to keep his distance and stay away because he has been so eager to see Elliot. And now that he's got the news about his promotion, he basically runs to him as fast as he can. <laughs> and he basically runs to Elliot like an excited child. I feel like um, he does kind of look up to Elliot in some way. It's like a movie about, you know, uh, a couple who've been separated by distance and then one of them's picking the other one up at the airport or something like it's got, it's a really great reunion. It's, um, but of course Tyrell, uh, while he's barfing up his story, um, kind of screws up the situation and Elliot quickly scrawls out that they're listening. Yeah. And I guess he thinks that this is probably dark army. I think that's his assumption because they does seem to be ignoring the Vera threat. I, I think it's fair to call it a threat altogether. And I guess that's the end of the episode. Yeah, it ends with a really cool kind of slow zooming shot out of the window that has the the focus of the shot right in the center. I think this is another one of those like really homecoming style shots. And um, I am actually not an expert on this, even though maybe I try and sound like it sometimes. But I think that's... Um, the influence specifically comes from um, Hitchcock. So I think that they're bringing like some kind of classic uh, cinematography back into play. Well, thank you so much for listening. We know this has been uh, a longer episode this week, but I feel like a lot happened. I think they're really setting the stage for the action to really pick up in the next few episodes. Yeah, and there are still so many episodes to go. So I'm pretty excited. Thank you very much for listening to our podcast today. If you're not already, you can follow us on Twitter at Mr. Underscore Rewatch. We would encourage you, if you've got some resources that you can afford to share, to consider contributing to the Rainbow Railroad. They are a group who help LGBTQI people around the world to find safety in starting new lives free from persecution. You can find them at RainbowRailroad.org. I'm Devlin. I'm Aaron. Bonsoir.